the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You know how you're sitting around having these hypothetical conversations with your friends? You're like, yeah, do you know anybody who could be a serial killer? You don't really think they're going to be a serial killer, but you're going to have a list of people who pop into your head, even though it's ridiculous, you know? But I mean, if we were ever talking about somebody who would be, Joe wouldn't even have popped into my head as a possibility, you know, not even for one to, for me to just be like, oh no, it couldn't have been Joe. Like he wouldn't even have occurred to me. It's such a weird headspace to be in because there's like the before Joe who was really sweet and he would, he would be more likely to come to your defense than to be an offender, you know, and just be a really trustworthy, nice just just a really good guy. I'm like, this is not the guy I know. This is like a completely different person. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope you're having a good week. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on another week of your favorite podcast, The First Degree. You know, I'm glad that our episodes come out on Wednesdays. It's a nice like hump day surprise to try to like push you through. There's only two days left after this. You can make it and then you can have yourself a nice, fun, relaxing weekend. So we're getting you through. If you think about it, Wednesday is basically Friday. Kind of. By the time you get through Wednesday, it's basically Friday. Yep. Because Thursday is a nice little delight too. People do happy hours. People, you know, it's it's almost a Friday. It's almost a Friday. Anyways, if you have not joined us on Patreon, we got to give her a little Patreon shout out. We won't make it long, but if you want more true crime content, I'm not going to call it bonus anymore because they are full true crime episodes, one a week for you to listen to. Please join us over there. It's a grand old time. Honestly, we love it over there. And all of our cases that we cover are listener submissions. So if there's a case you've been itching to have researched and learn about, well, that's your place. Email us and we'll do it for you. Absolutely. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. William Shakespeare wrote, All the world's a stage. And all the men and women are merely players. And if that's true, if life is a grand theater production, then of course people are going to wear masks. They'll put on facades, take on different roles. They will present the best version of themselves to others, because that's what we all do. We all want everyone to think we're caring, supportive, and worthy of love. But not all of us are caring, supportive, or worthy of love. Some of us just aren't good people. Quite the opposite, in fact. Some of us are bad manipulative, exploitative, but you would never know that just from the way this person acts. One person can be an entire duality, friendly and likable and charming, but also willing to hurt others for their own personal gain. So what do we do when a person appears to be good, but they are actually insidious? How do we find this person hiding in plain sight? Because they could be anyone, our doctors, our lawyers, our police officers, even our teachers. How do we identify these masked people? How do we expose them? And how do we protect ourselves and our loved ones from them before it's too late? 
Today's case begins on October 6th of 2021, which, as we all know, is the height of pumpkin spice latte season, the best. In theaters, movies like Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and No Time to Die were popular. And in music, the song Stay by The Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber led the Billboard Top 100 chart for six weeks in a row. Around this time, the hit show Succession began its third season. And the country of Venezuela launched a new initiative to try to combat its record-breaking annual inflation rate of 1,700%, which is insane. So basically, the Venezuelan government cut six zeros from their currency. So something that cost a million Venezuelan dollars before only became one after this new policy. I had never even heard of that. That is crazy. Does that work? Just shaving zeros off stuff? Can they do that for us? I don't know. (laughs) I hope so. I don't think so. Either way, the setting for today's case is Overland Park, Kansas, and it's located in the northeastern corner of Kansas in Johnson County. Overland Park makes up a sizable chunk of the Kansas City metro area, and this suburban city was incorporated on May 20th of 1960 with a population of just under 30,000 people. Since then, Overland Park has expanded rapidly. Today, it's home to about 200,000 people, and it's the second most populated city in Kansas. Compared to most places in the U.S., Overland Park is a wealthy area. In 2021, their median household income was nearly $100,000, and the percentage of Overland Park citizens who were experiencing poverty was at 4.1%. That's less than half the nation's average poverty rate, which is 11.5. So they're doing pretty good in Overland Park. Yeah. And our researcher, Andrea Marshbank, who helped write and research this episode, lives within driving distance of this area and actually has been to several of the places we're talking about today. So she has some insider info that she offered to share with us for this episode, which is great. She can tell you Overland Park is well known for its beautiful shopping centers, upscale restaurants, and very nice schools. And we'll talk about one of those schools a lot today, but first let's introduce our first degree. Her name is Megan, and she went to Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. It's a Catholic liberal arts school 60 miles north of Overland Park. And while Megan was there, she met a guy who also attended the same college. His name was Joseph Heidish, but he went by Joe. I met him my freshman year when I started as a freshman in Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. It's a really, really small, really small town. It was a much smaller school then, too. I want to say that he was a sophomore at the time. Megan was majoring in theater and English, and Joe was getting his bachelor's degree in music education. So just by the nature of them both being involved in the fine arts and Benedictine College being super small, Megan and Joe interacted quite a bit. Some of Megan's closest friends even moved in with him. It was a really small school, so even though we were in different departments, you'd cross paths a lot with pretty much everybody just because it was so small. And he and I, like, we were in two plays together. We were in Godspell. We were in, like, a senior production. We took country social dancing together, and we were in the choir. So, I mean, we crossed paths a lot that way anyway. But then I also had, like, a a friend I was actually really close to, and they got to be really good friends, and they became sweet mates later on, you know, where you have, like, the four rooms off a common room. And so they lived in a suite together. So we all ended up sort of hanging out together regularly just through the course of that. So he'd come to our suite to watch movies or play cards or he and I go to cast parties for things that, you know, we were in at the same time. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I got to know him. And it seemed like everybody liked Joe, including Megan. You know, Joe was this super likable guy. He was such a charmer and he was just kind of the person who nailed every first impression. 
he was the guy that if you were a Catholic girl going to a Catholic college, he was the Catholic man you wanted to meet and bring home to your parents. He just gave off just a really genuine, good guy vibe. He was really nice. He was really funny. He was cute. He was really smart. He had like a beautiful singing voice. You would trust anybody with him. You would feel completely comfortable around him. He was just a really good guy. So you wanted to be friends with him. Joe appeared to have the typical college experience. He went to classes, he participated in activities, and he had a part-time job as a chaperone for a local boys' school, which made a lot of sense since Joe was studying to become a music teacher. That's the kind of professional experience aspiring teachers like to put on their resumes. One time, Megan even helped Joe out with his chaperoning. There was an amusement park nearby called Worlds of Fun, and they were going to go and volunteer there, like cleaning up, you know, sweeping and whatnot. And then in exchange for that, they get to ride the rides for free. So he asked me to help him chaperone that. And it was this weird thing where it's like, we got there and then they wouldn't let us in, like the chaperones. They let the kids in, but they wouldn't let us go in with them. So he and I ended up sitting out in the parking lot for like four hours, just sort of entertaining ourselves. We waited for the boys to come out. And there was no sign of anything unusual there or anything inappropriate. It was just, you know, this nice guy who was doing this as a side job while he attended college. It's important to note here that Megan knew Joe pretty well. You know, you don't just spend four hours in a parking lot with somebody without getting a sense of who they are and what their character is really like. And still, Megan had no idea what was to come. Nobody did. Over time, Megan and Joe lost touch, the same way we all do with college friends who we aren't that close with. You like their posts on social media and you keep plugging along, you know? But then Megan started going to a new church. And wouldn't you know it, Joe was a choir director at this church. It was kind of a weird happenstance because when I graduated, like I moved away from Kansas, but then I moved back like a year later and made some friends. So I'd been in Kansas City for maybe five years or so and then just happened to cross paths with him at a mass at this church. He was directing his choir, like his choir was performing at that mass. So it was just a really strange coincidence because he and I had been friends mostly in a Facebook friends kind of way. So we kind of kept tabs on each other, but not with any sort of an effort. You know, when a birthday popped up, you'd wish happy birthday or say hi or put a like on a comment or, or something like that. But that was the first time I'd seen him in a really long time. Around the same time that Megan realized Joe was directing this church choir, Megan and her then-boyfriend, now-husband, decided to get married. And Megan began planning for a wedding, as one bride does. Megan wanted a live singer for her ceremony, and naturally, she thought of Joe. He would be the perfect wedding singer for Megan's nuptials. Right. After all, Joe was part of Megan's history. And that's just the type of small, sweet detail you'd like at your wedding. Plus, Joe had a great baritone voice and tons of experience as a musician and soloist. So Megan asked Joe to perform at our wedding, and Joe agreed. So that's how he ended up singing at our wedding. And he also played the trumpet as kind of a surprise for us during, you know, when you process out after the wedding mass, he played the trumpet, and that was really beautiful. Megan couldn't remember what song Joe did sing at the ceremony, and honestly, it's the most relatable thing ever. As somebody that just got married, you forget a lot of the details at the wedding. They're very stressful, so I understand. I think I was so fried by that point in the wedding planning that I just kind of threw it at him. I'm like, pick some songs. It's fine. You know, don't ask me any questions anymore. Just pick some songs and sing them. So I think that's what he ended up doing. But I mean, everybody commented afterwards that the music was really beautiful. So whatever he picked was really good. I just, I honestly don't remember what it was. I was so over it by then. (laughs) 
After Megan and her husband were married, Megan and Joe lost touch once again. Joe became a music teacher. He married a woman who was also a Benedictine college graduate, and he had a few kids, all while Megan started her own life with her husband. After that, there was like nothing. There was nothing for the next 10 years. So again, it would have gone back to, you know, Facebook, hi and happy birthday and things like that. But I never crossed paths with them again after that. I haven't actually seen him in person since. Frankly, Megan might have completely forgotten about Joe, you know, unless she was reminiscing about her wedding day. But in general, Joe just wasn't on the forefront of Megan's mind. This was until one day Megan received a text message completely out of the blue, and it was from a former college classmate. And the single text message shattered Megan's perception of Joe into a million pieces. I remember that very clearly because I was sitting in my house and my husband was like two feet away and somebody we were in the choir with at college, Kathleen, she texted me and she has never texted me before. Like I've seen her on Facebook, but she and I have never interacted personally as far as I could ever remember. And she texted me and all she sent me was the thumbnail of his mugshot. And I just about fell off my chair. I was like, oh my God, my husband was staying there. I scared him. And that's the first I heard of anything. And I still can't even believe it's the same person. It was so surreal. Megan couldn't fathom that this was the same Joe she'd known. Because this Joe, this Joe had done something horrible, something unthinkable. And unfortunately, it was the same Joe that Megan thought she knew. Though perhaps Megan hadn't actually known him at all. You know how you're sitting around having these hypothetical conversations with your friends you're like yeah do you know anybody who could be a serial killer you don't really think they're gonna be a serial killer but you're gonna have a list of people who pop into your head even though it's ridiculous you know but i mean if we were ever talking about somebody who would be joe wouldn't even have popped into my head as a possibility you know not even for one to for me to just be like oh no it couldn't have been joe like he wouldn't even have occurred to me what had joe megan's wedding singer and college friend done who had he hurt and why Is it possible that this could have been a big misunderstanding? Or was Joe's true nature something more insidious, something evil? To answer these questions, you know the drill. You gotta go back. Joseph Martin Heidish was born on March 1st of 1976. And throughout most of his life, he would go by Joe. Based on our research, it's likely Joe was named after his grandfather, who was also Joseph Heidish. So a nickname was pretty logical. That way, no one gets confused as to which Joe is which. Throughout Joe's life, he would live in Kansas, Georgia, and Iowa, though it's unclear when exactly he was in each of these locations. All we know is that by 1994, Joe was in Atchison, Kansas, and he was enrolled in Benedictine College alongside her first-degree Megan. As we mentioned before, Joe was studying to become a music teacher, which means that during his time at Benedictine, Joe performed in a bunch of recitals and community productions. I'm sure some were fun and others were for a grade. By 1998, Joe had graduated with his bachelor's degree, and within a year, he had nabbed a teaching position at a private Catholic school in Overland Park, Kansas. That school was St. Thomas Aquinas High School. So another interesting thing about this school is Andrea, our writer-researcher. She used to be an English teacher, and she actually would also coach her school's debate team. And she was at the school all the time during competitions. So she like actually been in this school. She's like, I probably walked by this dude's office. I'm like, that is so crazy. Anyways, when you think about a Catholic school, you think sharp uniforms, religion classes, and gorgeous facilities. And it's exactly what you picture when you hear private Catholic school. And that's what the school was. 
Right. And Joe would teach at the St. Thomas Aquinas High School for 22 years. He'd lead their musicals, organize student variety shows, and become a well-known teacher in the school. And at one point in his career, Joe was the school band director, but eventually he took over the choir director position. And that's where Joe's problems began. Well, at least according to the court documents. In early October of 2021, the students of St. Thomas Aquinas could tell that something was going on with their choir teacher, Mr. Joe Heidish. According to the documents, on Tuesday, October 5th, Mr. Heidish was not himself. Normally, he'd go out of his way to talk to his students, greet them, chat with them about their day. But on that Tuesday, Mr. Heidish was nearly silent. The next day, Wednesday, October 6th, everything became clear. Because that very morning, 45-year-old Joseph Martin Heidish had been arrested. He was charged with two counts of sexual exploitation of a child and two counts of breach of privacy. And that was only the beginning. Over the course of the next year, Joe would rack up 30 felony charges for crimes that he committed from 2016 to 2021, and all of which had to do with sexual exploitation of children and breach of privacy. He's planning cameras and videotaping girls as they were in varying states of undress and then keeping those files for his own sexual gratification, and it's the worst. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. By Saturday, October 9th, St. Thomas Aquinas School had sent out a message to students' families. They explained that Mr. Joe Heidish was on administrative leave, pending the results of a police investigation. Meanwhile, Joe was sitting in Johnson County Jail, where his bond was set at $250,000. And while he waited behind bars, the public learned of his transgressions through the media. And everyone, literally everyone, was absolutely livid and disgusted over what Joe had done. And I'm sure you're wondering, okay, what had Joe done? If you didn't take a music class in high school, it was pretty normal for a band, choir, or orchestra teachers to get a private office. This way, the teacher can shut their door and grade, or they can have meetings with parents while students practice their music in the bigger classroom area, because obviously it's loud. And this is, of course, if the school can afford this extra space. Right. And since Joe was choir director at a well-off school, he had a private office. And in that office, he had hidden one or more cameras. Then, what he would do is encourage his female students to go change into their choir robes in his office so that he could secretly film them in various states of undress and use that sexually explicit material for his own pedophilic sexual purpose. 
Joe is known for making his female students change their outfits over and over and over again. He claimed that he was trying to find the best fitting choir robes for their performance. Even though the girls would often say that their choir robes just fit fine. And the girls just couldn't change in the bathroom because, according to the Kansas City Star, Joe practically required them to change in his office. He told them that there was a special lock on the door to maintain privacy, but this was not true at all. He would kind of maneuver female students to feel safe using his office to change clothes, you know, to try on different choir, like performance outfits, costumes and things along those lines. You'd be like, yeah, my office, you know, it's totally safe. Go on in there, you know, change all you want. After secretly filming these underage girls who were partially clothed or fully nude, Joe would store these videos and images on a hard drive. Then he would organize the sexually explicit material into separate file folders, and he would name each folder after the female student who was in said sexually explicit material. The authorities found hundreds of these videos and photos on Joe's hard drive, and at least 25 victims could be definitively identified. However, court documents later claimed Joe victimized more than 100 young women, most of whom were members of the school choir. It's such like a dark thing to do Mm, yeah at school like it's so bold and it's like what gave you that idea in the first place like what who would do that this just seems so icky and so dark well and it's like he has his whole system in place too which is just so like he has thought this out he's thought about the cameras he has his folders all laid out like it's very organized and like really fucking gross and disgusting and seems almost like entitled like i'm gonna just name them the name of the girl the name of the folders is some it's like really throwing me it's i don't know why i'm like stuck on that but like it's very objectifying and super fucked up it's like almost like how teachers would categorize their students work you know that's not what he did though it's disgusting yeah So our first degree, Megan, was just as outraged about Joe's crimes as we are, and she was also just as curious as we are. The nice Catholic man that she'd known in college who sang at her wedding, he turned out to be a complete monster. And Megan just hadn't sensed that about him at all. So it had to be jarring for Megan to accept this harsh new reality. It's such a weird headspace to be in because there's like, the before Joe, who was really sweet, and he would be more likely to come to your defense than to be an offender, you know, and just be a really trustworthy, nice, just a really good guy. And then you've got the post Joe, which is, you know, this guy who is recording all these girls when they're undressed, who's using it for things I don't want to think about. This is not the guy I know. This is like a completely different person. Immediately, Megan began seeking out any information she could about this. She's always been a researcher at heart, and this case was no different. I've been listening to you guys for years. And even like when I'm listening to podcasts about, you know, people I've got no stake in at all, I like to look them up just so that I have the faces. I want to, you know, know everything else that's not being mentioned. This is an actual person that I had regular interaction with, you know, who I considered a friend, even if I hadn't, you know, actually spoken with him directly for a long time, I still considered him a good friend and, and, you know, a good person. So then when this comes up, like, I really just want to understand, like, I want to know, I want to know the why and when it started and, and how did he get from here to here? I'm still just trying to put it together in my head. It's the same person. It's a real Jekyll and Hyde sort of scenario that I, I still can't wrap my head around it. But this particular case was a doozy to research. Early on in the legal proceedings, the court decided to keep the police affidavit private. 
They wanted to avoid jeopardizing the physical, mental, or emotional safety or well-being of a victim, witness, confidential source, or undercover agent. That's a direct quote, obviously, which would have been included in the motion to keep this private. And they also didn't want to reveal hush-hush investigative techniques that they could use to catch other pedophiles. These are pretty good reasons to keep an affidavit sealed, but we are curious and we wish we could see it. For sure. And because the affidavit isn't available, we're not quite sure how the authorities knew what Joe was up to and how they were tipped off and how they found out about it. All we know for certain is that somehow Joe was caught with sexually explicit material involving a child, and this event happened outside of school property. According to Megan, Joe may have placed a camera inside somebody's home. But regardless, when Joe was caught for that initial child-related crime, he confessed to secretly filming his female students in his office. So I'm going to do a little speculation, some hypothesizing. Mm -hmm. So if the police were initially tipped off because of something he did outside of school, I'm betting he's part of like a pedophile community or Mm. he exchanged material with someone or, you know, because there's this caveat here, this thing they say about the affidavit, undercover agent, right? So my feeling is that maybe they had like confidential source. Maybe they flipped somebody who they caught who are like turnover your pedophile buddies or screen names or emails that you exchange material with or some operation on the internet led to him. And then they take a closer look. That's my guess. Yeah, that would make sense. Because if they didn't catch him from what he was doing at the school, they caught him doing something else, (laughs) doing something else. And if it is a camera in someone's house, he did something with that footage, maybe shared it. Because how else would people find out if there was no victim complaining, they found out in some sort of way like that is my guess. Right. According to Joe's defense attorney and court records, Joe cooperated fully with the police. And when he was brought in, he waived his right to counsel and his right to remain silent. He then told the detectives what he'd done and where to find the evidence that would prove it. He probably figured they're going to find it anyway. I might as well just rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah. And during the sentencing hearing, his lawyer said, it was basically a full and complete confession before charges were filed, before an arrest was made, and before counsel was hired. And on Monday, December 12th of 2022, Joe pleaded guilty. But let's not give Joe any sort of credit here. He was caught red-handed. And he was smart enough to realize it before he was slapped with an obstruction of justice charge, too. So ultimately, Joe's cooperation and plea deal might have altered his entire life trajectory. Especially because to onlookers, Joe's sentence seemed surprisingly lenient for five years of secretly filming his underage students change. Right. Especially because many of us, including our first degree Megan, are left wondering if Joe was doing things like this before. Remember, he was working at a boys school when he was in college as a chaperone. You know, I mean, if you're willing to do this, what are you not willing to do? Right. Sure. Detectives found evidence of Joe's crimes from 2016 to 2021. But is it possible they missed something? Of course it is, because criminals cover their tracks remarkably well. Because to install a camera in your office, to organize files by name, like what Jack and I are still baffled by, that feels practiced. Could Joe have been filming his students or engaging in pedophilia for even longer than investigators suspect? It makes me really wonder, you know, how far back did this start, you know? Because they only mentioned that they had the recordings and his activities beginning in 2016. It's like, was there stuff going on before that that we still have no idea about? You know, because we can't really ask him, why would he tell the truth at this point? He's been lying about everything for so long. It's just awful and just baffling. And why? And it's horrible. I feel so bad for them. 
45-year-old Joseph Martin Haidash was a teacher whom over 100 young women had implicitly trusted, and he exploited them for sexual purposes. The damage of that trauma is truly unimaginable. Even thinking about how the victims learned that they were victims is distressing in itself. The victims, when they were notified, they had to leave college from like really far away and come in with their parents to the police station and view the footage and verify, yeah, that's me, and like sign something. And I can't imagine how awful that would have been. After he accepted the plea deal, Joe's sentencing hearing was truly heartbreaking. Twelve survivors, all of whom were women in their teens and early 20s, gave victim impact statements at the hearing. And in those statements, they described exactly how Joe's crimes had negatively affected their lives. The young women spoke about how their own mental health struggles were greatly exacerbated by Joe's actions. Their anxiety, eating disorders, and general well-being had worsened. They explained how normal tasks, like changing in a store dressing room, now felt dangerous, how their emotional distress affected their current work, school, and personal lives, and how the way that they viewed their own bodies had changed, and how their relationships with male authorities figures had deteriorated. Because if they couldn't trust their beloved choir director, Mr. Joe Heidish, who could they trust? One young woman talked about how, when she heard that Mr. Heidish had been arrested for pedophilia-related crimes, and she defended him, telling other students that it couldn't be true. Another explained how it felt to have to go to the local police station to identify herself in this video footage. And another described how she'd always planned to pursue a music as a career, until all her high school experiences with music were tainted by Joe's crimes. One survivor regretted how she encouraged her little sister to join show choir, and she said to the court, As an older sister, you feel like you have to protect your younger siblings, but I would have had no power to do that. I was pushing her to do show choir her freshman year, which would have been my senior year, but if she joined, she would have a file with her name on it too. It's tragic all around, and Joe spoke at the sentencing hearing too, but most of what he said isn't worth the time of day and definitely not worth repeating, so we'll give you the Cliff Notes version. He gave a vague and unsatisfying apology to those affected by his actions, and he spent a considerable amount of time comparing his life to that of Catholic saints who committed sins before their sainthood. Give me a fucking break. That is so gross, dude. Disgusting. So to add insult to injury, Joe blamed his behavior on his porn addiction and mental health struggles. But we have news for Joe. Nearly 60% of Americans watch porn and about 20% of Americans have mental health issues. But somehow, all those people aren't secretly filming underage girls to satisfy their own pedophilia. As part of Joe's plea deal, he was charged with one count of sexual exploitation and 25 counts of breaching privacy. During the sentencing... Presiding Judge Michael Joyce explained that the breach of privacy charges were for the secret video footage Joe took of his students. Essentially, breach of privacy was what the prosecution was able to charge Joe with under Kansas laws. And we know, based on several episodes we've done like this, these things vary from state to state. The one charge for sexual exploitation was likely related to the first crime Joe was arrested for that was not related to Joe's students. Remember, that's the event that got him caught for what he was doing with the students. And that's the event that was not available to us because it's in that affidavit that was sealed. Many of the victims and their families have publicly wondered if Joe shared his secretly taped films with others, as in, did Joe put pictures or videos of his undressed students on the internet? Joe said he didn't, and investigative forensic technology suggests that he was telling the truth. According to court documents, there was only one instance of Joe disseminating sexually explicit material, and it had to do with somebody unrelated to this whole school situation that was going on. 
So this probably means it had to do with that first crime that initially led authorities to Joe. And it won't shock you to hear that no one trusts Joe's word. And the young women who survived Joe's exploitation are forced to live with the possibility that images or videos of their partially clothed bodies could exist online somewhere without their consent, which is a terrifying prospect. He claims he just kept this all for himself, and that's great and all, but you're never really going to know. And you're going to kind of brace yourself for, you know, the reach of technology nowadays that, yeah, it's really tiny and hard to spot, but it's, its range is so vast. You know, it could be something that's viewed by one person or like two million people, and you don't have any control over it after a certain point. So that's something that they're always going to worry about is like, what's out there? On Wednesday, June 7th of 2023, 47-year-old Joseph Martin Hydash was sentenced to 68 months in prison. He received credit for his 22 months of time served, and this meant that he had about 46 months to go, which was under four years. This sentence was a really hard pill to swallow for the victims and their families. Sure, because here they are, forced to endure a lifetime of recovery. Meanwhile, Joe would get to move on with his life in a handful of years. But both the prosecution and defense teams agreed to the sentence before Joe signed the deal. And the judge explained in detail that this was the most severe sentence possible, given the charges that Joe faced. At one point, the judge expressed a desire to sentence Joe for additional time, but he couldn't under the framework of Kansas laws. And we don't know a ton about the nuances of Kansas privacy law as it relates to teachers secretly filming students. But if we have any Kansas attorneys or policymakers listening, maybe check those out. But it really seems like something could be adjusted a little bit more fairly to punish trusted adults who exploit children for sexual purposes. Joe's crimes were far-reaching. Not only did he harm over 100 girls, but he also devastated an entire community. Now every parent sending their kids to St. Thomas Aquinas High School has to ask, is my child going to be safe? Are their teachers going to educate them? Or are they going to harm them? And how can anyone be 100% certain? And this train of thought led some parents to start asking other important questions, too. Like, should the school be held responsible for Joe's actions? Should the school have better monitored Joe? And should they have said, hey, don't let kids change in your private office? And even should they have found Joe's secret camera? To date, six civil lawsuits have been launched against both Joe and St. Thomas Aquinas High School, and they are currently ongoing. The basic premise of each lawsuit is the same. The school should have spotted the danger Joe presented and stopped it. According to the Kansas City Star, one of the lawsuits specifically accuses Joe and the school of, quote, negligence, negligent failure to train and supervise, invasion of privacy, outrageous conduct causing severe emotional distress, agency liability, breach of fiduciary duty, premises liability, unjust enrichment, and violation of the Kansas Consumer Protection Act, close quote. It's challenging to say if the high school is responsible for Joe's misconduct. Prior to this debacle, Joe had no criminal history. So it wasn't like the school made this big error during the hiring process. They had no idea. But also, there has to be some kind of fail-safe for this kind of thing. There has to be ways for schools to catch grooming behavior and pedophiles before it's too late. Yeah, I'm going to say changing in the office is a big problem. Like, Yeah. Because who is to say... If a teacher's in there while someone's, you know, who's, it's just very suggestive of like either it could get misinterpreted, you know, high school kids are getting up to like 18. It's just a bad idea. Well, and it's the same kind of thing where it's like anytime a student is in a classroom with a teacher, like I think a lot of times you have to leave the door open. Yeah. So it's, it sort of goes along with that. Like there shouldn't be a 
kid alone in your classroom, especially if they're changing, you know, that just shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. I do think also more of this happens at private schools because they don't have to follow the same like state rules as state funded schools. So, you know, Catholic private schools have their pros and they have their cons, right? Plus we all know the scandals the Catholic church has had with pedophilia. So, you know, they need to revamp a lot of their practices, whether that be in their churches or in schools. And not to mention that teachers, much like police officers, are in positions of power over their students. And maybe people gravitate towards those positions of power for nefarious reasons. Certainly some do. We see it with police all the time. Either way, there's a lot to consider here. There's already that stigma of, you know, all these these priests and these kids and all that stuff. It's like this is the nature of any job. The risk of any job that puts you in contact with children, that's going to be across the board. That is going to be teachers and medical people and priests. And, you know, these people get into trusted positions to get access. So it's, you know, that's not a Catholic thing. That's a, that's a criminal sick person thing. And it's awful. St. Thomas Aquinas High School has not made a public comment about these lawsuits. And today, Joe is incarcerated in the Winfield Correctional Facility in Winfield, Kansas. It's a minimum security prison, and his earliest possible release date is January 23rd of 2027. He'll be 50 years old at the time, and his victims will be in their late teens and early 20s. Right. And as far as just all the questions we posed about liability of the school, St. Thomas Aquinas, at the time this happened. Andrea actually had a family member who taught there during this whole thing. And she said, you know, from an insider perspective, this question has severely divided the school community. A lot of people viewed the families suing the school as money grabbers, not saying it's true, but that's how they saw it because the guy had no criminal history. How could they have known, right? Mm -hmm. Either way, she noted that this one man ruined a lot of people's lives and ruined the school's reputation for a time. Apparently, the school had a stellar reputation prior to this scandal. So it was an interesting little insider info that she was able to provide. Anyways, back to Joe going to prison. So when he is released, he won't be able to contact any of his victims and he will have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. And at the time of his sentencing, Joe had participated in at least 30 one-on-one therapy sessions and had plans to do more. And we assume these therapy sessions are meant to combat Joe's pedophilic tendencies or whatever it is he's trying to talk therapy out of his system. Um, I hope that works. I don't know if it does. Either way, our first degree Megan isn't so sure if Joe can ever be fully rehabilitated. This would be so much easier if he were like a bank robber or something, because then I could say, yeah, you can reform a bank robber. Sexual related addictions, I think, are a whole different animal because depending on who you talk to, They're like, yeah, it's like any other addiction. You can get weaned off of it. You can get treatment for it. But at the same time, it's like the nature of this particular addiction. And I think you kind of have to have some sort of a wiring in your brain that kind of is angling you toward this sort of attraction in the first place. I don't know how much of that could be rewired realistically. He'd been attending therapy. He'd been trying to work through this addiction, and he fully intended to continue to work on that in the future. And I hope that he really benefits from that because the instinct is still to defend him, be like, well, he's a good person, but he made this mistake. But at the same time, how do you make this sort of mistake where it's like you decide that this is what you're into and you plan the stuff you're going to buy and then you plan how to plant that, you hit record, 
you save those in, in neatly organized little files, and then you view each of those files God knows how many times. It's like, at some point, you kind of just are a bad person. In June of 2023, Joe and his wife divorced. And honestly, good riddance. His family members are obviously victims in the stories as well. They didn't ask for him to be a pedophile and a total asshole. They didn't know any of this was going on. And they had to deal with all the consequences of his horrific actions as well. Right. And it's upsetting to think about how much of an impact Joe's actions had and will have on everyone he had a relationship with. As women, we're all taught that we aren't ever fully safe. Don't go outside alone at night. Monitor your drinks in public settings. It's an idea that people plant in our heads when we're young, too young. Watch out because someone somewhere wants to hurt you. But to these young women affected by Joe, it won't be an idea. It will always be very, very real. As a woman, we're like two-way cameras and check your hotel rooms and check for two-way mirrors and the backseat of your car. And After a certain point, you know, it's so automatic. It's like almost an urban legend because this is something that doesn't happen to you, hasn't happened to anybody you know, hopefully, you know. But now it's like this is something that's been cemented for these girls and they're never going to feel safe again. And it's awful. It's like this is a thing that does actually happen. You actually have to check for cameras and things, you know, even when you're in places that you wouldn't think they'd hide them, you know, like school offices. As a result of everything, our first degree Megan is left questioning her perception of other people. Because if Joe was not the good person that she thought he was, then who else could be pretending to be a good person as well? Nobody really knows anybody. Because when I've got this person that I considered a friend who I would trust 100% with my safety, with anybody else's safety, I would have recommended him, you know, as a teacher for anybody. It makes you kind of question your own judgment. Because I would never have questioned that this guy was a good person, like an excellent example of an upright, just a really good guy. And then this comes up and you start to wonder about all the other people in your life that you casually trust without even really thinking about it. And then this comes up and you really start to reexamine. It's like, what else don't I know? Who else do I think is just a really good person? And I don't know anything about what they do when nobody's looking. And it's and it's just a weird and surreal place to be. It just okay. makes you really think about the people that you trust with your safety without really thinking about it. Even if you consider yourself to be a very cautious person, if you really look at all the people that you just trust inherently, you know, like your medical professionals and your coworkers and your relatives and family friends, it's like, these are people you trust without really thinking about it. If humanity is a tapestry, then trust is a thread that holds everything together. Without trust, we unravel. We have to be able to walk into a doctor's office, a police station, or a school without fearing that the authority figures within those buildings will take advantage of us or those we love. We literally have to. To question every person around us would be exhausting, debilitating. It would be a full-time job. So instead, we hope for the best. When we meet our kids' teachers at a school's open house night, we shake their hand, we look into their eyes, and trust that they'll keep our children safe. But that leaves us a little vulnerable because people, evil people, can exploit this trust. They see that others rely on them automatically, implicitly, without a single thought. And rather than accepting that trust is an honor, they manipulate, they gaslight, and exploit those with less power. And that's terrifying because it's hard to catch and it's hard to prove, and it's even harder to stop. A 
huge thank you to Megan for being our first guest for today's episode. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you are looking for more true crime content and stick around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. That's right. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing research in Insider Insight Info in today's episode by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, The Belleville Telescope, St. Joseph News Press, The Kansas City Star, Johnson County Court Documents, and the Kansas Department of Corrections. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. <laughs>